Father, thank you so much for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that it has to teach us. And Lord, we pray that by the help of your spirit, you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might know you better and that we might love you more. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, you don't have to watch too much the news or indeed experience too much of life to see some pretty significant falls from grace. There should be a couple of pictures coming up on the screen here. You pop it on one. You may be familiar with this guy, Oscar Pistorius, South Africa pinup, face of the Paralympics in 2012. He won two gold medals and became the first ever Paralympian to run in the abled body games. Some achievement. But a year later, he'd killed his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp, and he's now serving the first of six years in prison. It's a pretty significant fall from grace. Here's another. Lance Armstrong, seven times Tour de France winner, face of Live Strong Cancer Charity. But in 2012, they uncovered probably the biggest doping scandal of all time. And he was discredited on every front. He had his seven yellow jerseys stripped from him. And he was shamed publicly. Another significant fall from grace. And just so you know, it's not just sports people. Another guy on the screen here, Dennis Hastert, who is the Speaker of the House of Representatives in the US. He was sent to prison for 15 months earlier in 2016 for paying a total of $1.7 billion in hush money to cover up decades of sexual abuse. And I could go on case after case after case after case of significant falls from grace. And the bigger the fall, seemingly the sadder the story, right? I remember watching a documentary not too long ago that uh, covered some people that are living homeless on the streets of London. And one of the guys that they'd followed was actually a big, previously a big banker in the city, millionaire, big penthouse suite, had the lot. But he got caught up in a bit of a financial dismeanor, lost his job, lost his money, lost his house, lost his wife, lost his children. And a year on, he was sleeping on the same street that he walked to every day to work. Significant falls from grace. And you see, what we've got before us here in 1 Samuel chapter 28 is an even more significant fall from grace in the life of King Saul. You may be familiar with the phrase, how the mighty have fallen. You familiar with that phrase? Well, it's actually a phrase that David himself used as he looked back at the demise of Saul in this chapter and his eventual death in chapter 31. Have a look at the first chapter of 2 Samuel. This is what David says. David took up the lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow, this song that they should sing to remember. And what should they remember? A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. This once celebrated king is now crawling around in a disguise under the cover of darkness and he's visiting a witch, a medium in Endor. In a last gasp attempt to save himself from annihilation at the hands of the Philistines. And the following day... He'll be dead. 
how the mighty have fallen. And you see in so many ways as we, as we see this demise of Saul, we see in Saul a picture of humanity, of people who were created to enjoy being in God's presence in the paradise of Eden. God created us in so many ways to be kings. That's the language of Genesis. He created us to rule over under him as the one true great king. He gave us authority. But just like Saul, humanity has rejected the one true king. And humanity too has fallen just as spectacularly as Saul from grace. Leaving us in this broken world that we now experience. And you see from that introduction it should be pretty clear that actually 1 Samuel chapter 28 is actually a pretty bleak chapter. One of the bleakest in fact in the whole testimony of scripture. Themes of distress and and despair and disobedience and darkness are woven pretty finely together in this chapter. But before we do enter the mess of chapter 28, please let me comfort you this evening and encourage you that there is a shaft of light. Pretty depressing reading, right, when you hear it. But there is a shaft of light that cuts right through the heart of this depressing story. But you must be patient and wait until we get there. Four headings this evening. I've called the first one distress. It's not actually a word that's used until verse 15 of this chapter when Saul himself uses it to describe his own position, his own predicament. But it's a word that sums up much of what's going on in the first section of this story. Let me read to you again verse 3 and 4. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. It's deja vu, isn't it? Stage deja vu. Once again, the battle lines are drawn between the Philistines and the Israelites, just as they were in chapter 17, when David went head to head with Goliath. But this time, Saul has no David to fight on his behalf. Remember last week, we saw David actually hiding out with the Philistines, Israel's great enemy. But more significantly than that, Saul has no help from the Lord who we read in this chapter, has rejected him. And so Saul looks out on this vast Philistine army in verse 5, and his heart is full of fear. Look what he says when Saul saw the Philistine army. He was afraid. Terror filled his heart. Saul is gripped with this fear as he looks out on this vast Philistine army. So what does he do? Well, in desperation, he turns to God in verse 6. Like so many in our day, when crisis comes, when people are squeezed into a corner, when they have nowhere left to turn, where do they go to? They go to God. And so it is with Saul. But you know what? To, to treat God like that really is to treat God as no better than a heavenly vending machine whose most of life will just walk past and we couldn't even care less it's there. But when we want something, pop the money in the slot and expect to get exactly what we want. It's how so many people in the world today 
treat our God. Now, of course, if if the heart is right and the prayer is genuine, then even in these moments of desperation, the Lord is very willing to answer those prayers, is he not? You may remember the story in Luke chapter 23 of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. And in his final hour, he recognizes his own sin and he recognizes his king, his savior who is dying next to him. And he's forgiven. And he hears those wonderful words of assurance from the Lord Jesus. Today, you will be with me in paradise. God is ever so willing to answer the prayer that comes from a genuine heart. But that's not the case, as we learn with King Saul. His heart is not right. His prayer is not genuine. He has rejected the Lord. And the Lord has rejected him. And so in verse 6, this is terrifying words. There is silence from heaven. Verse 6, he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. Silence from heaven. You know what the sound of the Philistine army and the clashing of the shields and, and the anticipation of victory that would have been heard from the Philistines? No doubt that filled Saul's heart with fear. But his greater distress was not caused by the noise of the Philistines. It was caused by the silence of God. Samuel's dead, verse 3. Did you notice that at the beginning? Samuel is dead. There's no answer from the Lord. There is no prophet that is speaking to King Saul. And this once regal figure is reduced to a quivering wreck. Helpless and alone, without God and without hope. How the mighty have fallen. And you see the teaching here isn't isn't gentle by any means. But it is clear. If people despise God's word it will be taken from them if people persistently refuse to obey God's word as Saul did then they will endure God's silence and there can be no more terrible thing than to be abandoned by the living God but it's in this moment that the first great shaft of light cuts into this dark passage because as we trace this story through through to King David and through to the Lord Jesus himself we see in the Lord Jesus another king who stepped into the darkness one who also faced God's silence remember on the cross the Lord Jesus went there and he cries out to his God my God, my God, why? why have you forsaken me? why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? But there was silence from heaven. His father did not answer him. And scripture tells us why he was abandoned for our sake. He hung there in our place. Why? So that we may never endure that same silence that Saul experienced here. But more importantly, that same silence and suffering that the Lord Jesus went through on our behalf. Friends, let us be a people who pray, who pray for the people of this world that they would be open to the word of God and not close to it, as King Saul was. Firstly, this is a story of distress. 
But it's also, as we'll see, a story of despair. Because just when you think that things couldn't get any worse, right? Well, they do in verse 7. Because look where Saul is pushed to in his despair. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so that I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. And so this great fall from grace continues as Saul in his desperation turns to the darkness of the underworld to help him. And remember this is the Saul again in verse 3 who previously had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. He had walked faithfully with the Lord. He was obedient to his God. He had done as his God had said in Deuteronomy. But now with royal robes hidden under the cover of of darkness he's on his way to visit a woman practicing the dark arts and as we read in verse 8 so Saul disguised himself putting on other clothes and at night he and two men went to the woman consult a spirit for me he said and bring up for me the one that I name the medium is rightfully wary in verse 9 she thinks it might be a trap and rightly so to think that Because Saul had previously banned her from the land. But remarkably, Saul convinces her it's okay in verse 10. And you see the irony? He actually swears on the name of the Lord. Here is a man who had previously banned these practices. Now he's turned, he's rejected the word of the Lord. And he swears by the name of the Lord while he walks directly down a path that the Lord has forbidden. And so the seance begins in verse 11. Let me read it to you from verse 11 to verse 15. Then the woman asked, who shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams, so I've called on you to tell me what to do. Now, no doubt a section like that forces us to ask a whole host of questions, many of which we haven't got time to answer this evening, many of which aren't even answered in the passage before us. We need to go elsewhere in the scriptures to see what the Lord has to say. But let's not miss the obvious here this evening there really is a dark underworld that must not be dabbled with no doubt today there's a whole host of smoke and mirrors and a load of fakery that goes on but this was real Saul was messing around with the dark underworld the occult whatever we want to call it and he was walking down a path that had been forbidden by his lord So as we think about that today, what does that look like? Well, I think as Christians, as we, as we 
think about this subject of the dark underworld, the occult, I think we can slip to one of two extremes here. Number one, we can slip right down this end and we can almost live as if there is no dark underworld. No spiritual battle whatsoever. No evil one at all. And we live life like he's not even there. Which would be a great mistake. Because the Bible makes it clear that there really is an evil spiritual realm. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Our enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There really is an evil one seeking to kill, steal and destroy. Undermine all that God is doing in this world. Undermine the faith of his people. And the Lord Jesus knew it oh so well himself, didn't he, with the temptations that he faced? It's why in the Lord's Prayer, when he encourages his disciples how to pray, he says, pray that we will be delivered from the evil one. Jesus knew, and we must take heed, we must not be naive, there really is a spiritual battle going on in this world. And our great weapon, of course, is prayer, as we come before the living God. But you see, we can slip to the other end of the spectrum as well in this. Not just almost forget about it and think it's not there. But I think some people might actually get a, almost get excited as they look at these things. They can have an unhealthy obsession when it comes to the occult or the underworld. People actually get quite excited about looking into it and thinking about it. But you see, when the Bible talks about it, it's always on the periphery. Always. And that's exactly where it should stay, because the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of Scripture. God's word focuses upon him, and it puts the evil dark realm around the circumferences, and that's exactly where it should stay. We learn in Colossians 2, verse 15, don't we, as we think about the magnificent work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. The Lord Jesus came to die and to deal with this dark, evil realm once and for all. For those of you who do want to do a bit more thinking, I can recommend this book, Living with the Underworld by Peter Bolt. He he does take a bigger view of Scripture, all the different parts of the Bible that speak into it. But in that very healthy way, he keeps bringing you back to the Lord Jesus, who was ultimately conquered over all that is evil in this world. So I do recommend that one for you. Firstly, distress. Secondly, despair. And it doesn't get any better because thirdly, we're going to look at disobedience. You see, in verse 16, the spirit of Samuel now actually speaks and makes it clear why this is happening. Have a look at verse 16 and 17. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Samuel references back to a story we've already looked at in this series. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Saul rejects God. Let me read it to you. It's on the screen there if you want to follow. This is back in chapter 15. This is what Samuel is referencing here. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. 
Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. This is the story that Samuel references Saul back to. And if it hasn't sunk in yet for Saul, look what Samuel goes on to say in verse 18. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me i.e. you'll be dead. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all that night. And so this once great king is reduced to a crumpled heap on the floor. Why? Well, Samuel says it's because of his willful disobedience. How the mighty have fallen. And as you pause there and look at that picture in verse 20 of Saul lying on the ground, his energy gone almost, his life taken from him. Please remember that as we work this story through, Saul is indeed a picture of humanity. Every single one of us is flawed. Every single one of us is broken. Every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us has rejected the word of the Lord. It's not just Saul. It's all of us. And what we're left with here in verse 20 is a vivid picture of where disobedience without repentance ultimately leads. Note, this isn't just a picture of disobedience, else we're in a whole world of bother. This is a picture of where disobedience without repentance ultimately leads. Because the Lord Jesus stands before this broken world and he pleads that this world would repent. It's how Mark's gospel starts, isn't it? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, says Jesus. Turn away from your sin and disobedience and trust in the king, in the living God. Paul, as well as he speaks to the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, says the same thing. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because without repentance from sin, without trust in the Lord Jesus, then humanity is walking down the same path as Saul. Distress, despair, disobedience, And finally, darkness. Now, darkness is a word that we could have used to describe all that's happening here. The darkness of Saul's loneliness when he heard nothing from heaven. The darkness of the setting in the night undercover when all this happened. The darkness of the underworld and the occult. The darkness of sin and disobedience is all about darkness. But as we come to this last little bit from verse 21 to the end then we'll see this little reference to darkness or night once again. Let me read to you from verse 21. When the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, Look, your servant has obeyed you. 
I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so that you may eat and have the strength to go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging him and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she slaughtered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it, and baked bread without yeast. Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. That same night, they got up and left. The scene is Saul's last supper. Tomorrow he will die. You can read of it in chapter 31. This is Saul's last supper. But as you read of Saul's last supper, does it not bring to mind another last supper? When another so-called religious individual who had once walked with the Lord, who was obedient to his master, headed out into the darkness to betray Jesus. John 13, verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken bread, he went out and it was night. And you see that little reference to night in both John 13, 30 and 1 Samuel 28, verse 25? It's not just a description of timing. It's a theological point that the writer is making. Darkness equals evil. Saul was in the dark. Judas was in the dark. Humanity in the dark. But as we've touched on already at the beginning, but this is where we must finish this evening. There was another king who 3,000 years later also stepped out into the darkness for us. And he didn't need to. He didn't go there because of his own disobedience. He went there because of ours. I'm just going to pull up those verses in Mark's gospel just as we ponder them as we finish. The wonder of a saviour who entered the darkness for us. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus experienced the darkness of hell that we might walk in the light of heaven. At that exact moment when the Lord Jesus breathes his last, look what happens in verse 38. We know it. The curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. This great barrier between a holy God and sinful people is ripped in two because people like me and you have access back into the arms of a living and a loving saviour. And you notice the detail torn in two from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, not from earth to heaven. This isn't our doing. This is the doing of the Lord Jesus who willingly walked that path who went to the darkness of Gethsemane, betrayed by a friend, wrongfully arrested, wrongly tried, and then experienced the utter darkness of the cross, that we might walk in the light for all eternity. So you see, 1 Samuel chapter 28, on first reading, it's a pretty bleak chapter. But after the darkest 
of nights comes the brightest of dawns. And I want to leave you just with a few words from the Lord Jesus to ponder for a couple of minutes. We've sung the song already. But our wonderful saviour, who says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never, ever, ever walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just take a moment, a minute maybe on your own to digest something of what the Lord has been saying. Ponder that verse on the screen. Celebrate in your heart and thank your father in heaven that he sent his son for you. After the darkest of nights comes the brightest of dawns. After Good Friday comes Easter Sunday. And we're going to stand as we sing to finish a wonderful resurrection hymn. See what a morning, gloriously bright, with the dawning of hope in Jerusalem. Let's stand together and sing.